Hi, I'm Erwin McManus. I want to welcome you to the Mosaic Podcast. I want to also bring you into some exciting things that are happening here. If you go to the Mosaic app, you will learn about our conference coming up this year, about MSC's new album and their tour across the country. And you can learn how to connect and be more involved in Mosaic in so many different ways. And by the way, we now have the Mosaic YouTube channel. And you can go access not only these talks, but other fresh and new materials that are being created specifically for that channel. And so if you want to be connected in a richer and fuller way, uh, not only be a part of the podcast, get to the Mosaic app and get to the channel. And we'll see you there. Everything God does, he does to build in you the resolve and the capacity to overcome every obstacle and every crisis and every challenge in life. There are things that have held you for so long because you're so afraid and you don't realize that the reason God has not removed those from your life is because you will not overcome them by Him removing them. You will overcome them when you trust Him and rise above them. I am absolutely convinced that God is waiting for us to ask Him Lord, this is what I want you to do for me. And I'm convinced that God is asking us, what do you want me to do for you that you cannot do for yourself, that no one else can do for you? What do you want me to do for you that will be proof that I am God? What do you want me to do for you that will declare to the world that I am here? It's been a crazy, crazy busy week. Been coast to coast, was in Miami, and then stopped through Dallas and came back home. And we're here for a couple of days. And then Kim and I, we went out to Arusha, Tanzania. And, and then from Tanzania, I'll fly down to Cape Town, South Africa. And then I'll go from there to Lima, Peru, just trying to hit the places that are furthest apart across the world. And, and then we'll be back on September 11th, and it'll be exciting because that'll be the week that The Last Arrow launches, and I'm just excited about what God is doing in the middle of all of that. But I have to tell you, it was so incredibly frustrating to be on the East Coast when the whole dynamic with Charles, 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 Charlesville, Charlottesville, can't say it, Charlottesville, the whole dynamic with Charlesville broke out. In fact, last week, our pastor Emerson Nowatney was supposed to speak, but when everything broke out in Charlesville, I um, texted him and said, hey, I think Pastor Joe Smith needs to speak. And I love the fact that we're such an incredibly diverse community that no matter what's happening in the world, we know there's someone that can step into that moment. And so with just a few hours notice, I asked Joe Smith if he would bring the message. And from across the country, I heard the ramifications, the the, um, just the power of his message. And I, and I want to take a moment and thank you, Pastor Joe Smith, for bringing such incredible words last week. It was beautiful. But even though it's been a week, and it would seem as if the conversations around Charlottesville would be behind us, they're still right in front of us. And, and perhaps a part of what I was allowed to experience as I traveled across the country were the different perspectives and different conversations that were being had. 
Because for me, in, in that moment, it, it was such a, a stark realization of, of some of the conflicts and crises that we still have to engage that I was surprised there were people who were confused about what to think or how to perceive it. And, and I was in a room with, with incredibly sincere people who I, I know are intelligent and thoughtful and, and good-hearted people. And, and I found myself seeing this whole situation completely differently. It, it, it began a little bit off balance. I, I was going to be on this TV show and they're having a meal beforehand and I was the last one who came in while they were already seated eating and I walked in and as they were pointing me to the food, I heard someone say, well, we were on vacation in Tahoe and I don't mean to offend anyone, but it's just full of a bunch of Californians. So they're all right, this is gonna be an interesting conversation. And so I, I grabbed my food and I sat down just quietly and, 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 and thought I, I don't want to create any crisis or conflict. And, and then of course the person in charge asked me to introduce myself. And so I just, I had to do it. I just looked across the table to the person who said it. And I said, hi, my name is Erwin McManus and I'm from California. <laughs> and it became instantly tense. And then I added to that and it, it's worse than that. I am from Hollywood. Because I, I knew exactly what he was thinking and I knew what part of the country he didn't feel should be a part of the union. And, and the conversation continued and eventually it moved toward politics and it moved toward Charlottesville and it moved toward the racial conflict. And, and I tried just to listen in. I was an outside guest and, and I just wanted to respect and honor the moment I was in. And I knew we were about to go on television and I thought I don't want to have a conflict. I could hear my kids' voices in me. Dad, you don't always have to pick a fight. You don't always have to um, engage a conflict. And, and, and I thought this was funny from the two kids I know who never run from a fight. And, and so I sat there quietly. I tried to be invisible. Have you ever tried to be invisible in a moment where you hope no one would look your way? I didn't look up. I didn't make eye contact. I just ate my barbecue. But eventually the host looked at me and said, Sir Irwin, what do you think about all of this? And, and everything they had said was such a contrast to everything I felt. And I didn't really know how to step into this moment. When, but when he looked at me, he said, Erwin, what do you think about all this? I thought, I'm terrified I'm about to say what I think. And so I looked at them and I said, well, I don't think there's any place in the world or in any way where anyone connected to Jesus could in, at any moment appear to be connected to white supremacists and Nazis. And so I, I think it's very black and white. I think it's clear. I don't think there are different sides to this issue. If you're identified with Jesus, you have to be against white supremacists and Nazis. And it created a little bit of, of a, you know, can applaud that. And, and it created a really tense moment. Because it sounds like I was saying that I thought they were white supremacists and Nazis. And that's not at all what I was saying. I was saying that if you are silent and do not speak against this, you will be perceived as a white supremacist or a Nazi. That silence is the only space evil needs to prevail. And, and, and so as we continued the conversation, there was a lot of pushback. And finally it came to this where the host looked at me and said, do you think we're white supremacists and Nazis? And I said, of course, I do not think you are white supremacists and Nazis, but I do think people think you are. 
I think the perception of Christianity, of evangelical Christianity, is that we are in bed with white supremacists and Nazis. And if we do not speak up in this moment, we will find ourselves on the wrong side of history. And I think that's a part of the problem. See, I think a part of the problem is that, that when, I, when I look at the history of humanity and the history of the movement of Jesus, I, I know that there have always been people who are followers of Jesus who are on the right side of history, but far too often the church as a whole is found on the wrong side of history. And, and, and if there's anything I can do about it, if anything we can do, it, we need to make sure that the church is on the right side of history from this day going forward. Well, it didn't go well. But, but, but I, I walked away thinking to myself that, that, that whatever else we do, we cannot be silent in this moment. And I started asking about to myself, well, what, 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 what is Jesus doing in the middle of all this? What is God doing in the middle of this mess that we call human history? And, and what should we say about it? And how should we engage in it? It was several years ago. I, I was called by the Bill O'Reilly show to be on their television show. Do you remember when they were on the air? And, and I remember specifically, it was on immigration. And they wanted me to come on the show talking about immigration. And, and so the producer was interviewing me and I shared with them my, my, my views on immigration and, and undocumented aliens and illegal immigrants and everything else that people talk about. And as I was sharing with them my views, the producer said, no, that, that won't do. So well, what do you mean? She goes, oh, you, you, you have a, a holistic view of this issue and we don't want that. We need an extreme position from you. I said, but I don't have an extreme position. In fact, my view is that extremism is the lowest form of intelligence. And why would I ever choose an extreme? So, well, you won't work for our show. We need you to choose an extreme. And so I was disqualified from being on what was the number one talk show in America because I wasn't dumb enough to advocate for a position that cannot be defended by any thoughtful human being. And, and it struck me that this is the part of the problem is that, that there are well-intentioned and well-thoughtful, well-thinking Christians out there, but they're not invited into the broader conversation. Because what people are looking for are extremist views that actually put Jesus in the worst light. And I don't know if you know this, but people actually think that Christians are stupid. And there's a reason for that. It's because there are stupid Christians. <laughs> now, there are stupid people of every belief system. Now, I know I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say there are stupid people. I should just say they have stupid ideas. But I think sometimes we just need to say that while Jesus saves us from our sin, he doesn't save us from our stupidity. We can actually drown in our stupidity and be defined by it. And a part of the cultural problem is that we keep allowing other people to speak on behalf of Jesus rather than stepping out of our anonymity and saying enough is enough. So I want to talk to you tonight about the future of humanity. Because a huge part of this conflict was the past of humanity, the history of humanity. And I could spend time talking to you about the history of humanity, but I'd rather talk to you about the future of humanity. See, ironically, when I went to college, my first major was history. 
which is kind of odd because my entire inclination is as a futurist. But I didn't want to study history so that I could live in history. I wanted to study history so that I would not repeat history. I wanted to study history so that history could be the platform from which we could create a different future. And I want you to know that Jesus doesn't change the past. He creates the future. And far too many of us are trying to fix the past rather than create the future. And so we need to know, where is Jesus taking us? What kind of future is he creating? So I thought the best place to get insight into the future of humanity is the book of Revelation. Now, if you've been here for many years, you know that I probably never taught from the book of Revelation. There's a reason for that. I do not understand the book of Revelation. (laughs) But I felt so much better because my wife Kim told me that John Calvin wrote a commentary for every book in the New Testament except for the book of Revelation. And when he was asked why he didn't write a commentary on the book of Revelation, he said, I just don't understand it. And this is the first time John Calvin and I have anything in common. (laughs) But I I thought, I'm going to unwrap the book of Revelation for all of us as we look to see what the future of humanity is. And by the way, it is not the book of Revelations. There's no S. It's the book of Revelation. So if you are a part of this community, if anyone identifies you with Mosaic, could you drop the S so that you at least sound like a person who knows something about the Bible? So in the book of Revelation, singular, in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count, From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and the Lamb, by the way, is Jesus. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And Jesus is described as the Lamb, because he became the sacrificial Lamb, who was sacrificed for the sins of the world. That through his blood, we might actually be made clean. And in this imagery, and I'm going to confess, I cut out the verses right before it. It talks about like seven heads or seven eyes or seven something. Because I have no idea what that's about and it's a little creepy. (laughs) And so on a different Sunday, I'm not going to tell you when, we'll be inviting Pastor Emerson Nowotny to unwrap... That other passage of scripture. But I want you to see with me that it tells us that they were wearing white robes to signify that they've been cleansed, made pure, holy. And they were holding palm branches in their hands as a symbol that they had peace with God and peace with each other. What a beautiful world that would be. But this world had a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language. And so I I may not know everything about the future and so much of the future is filled with mystery and uncertainty and I'm actually grateful for that because it makes life an adventure. But here's something I can tell you about the future of humanity. The future that Jesus is creating is one where God brings together people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue and every color. And he brings us together as one. 
And we will all be wearing white. And we will not be measured by the color of our skin or economic status. We will all be carrying palm branches because we will be at peace with ourselves, with God, and with each other. That's the future of humanity. And this future looks different than our past. I'm going to open up another passage in the book of Revelation. Verses, chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. It says, and they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000s. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the seas and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell and worshiped. One of the most majestic and beautiful images of all the angelic multitudes coming and laying and worshiping at the feet of Jesus. But guess what? Not only is this a description of tens upon tens of thousands of angels coming and worshiping Jesus, but we are there in this story. We are in the future of humanity together. He says there are persons from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. See, it incensed me when I heard white supremacists using the name of Jesus. It incensed me when those who were carrying Nazi flags were somehow claiming God. I want to be clear. The future that Jesus is creating is a future where all the nations and every tribe and every language and every people come together as one. And if you do not want a world where the world comes together, you do not want the world that Jesus is creating But he says, how he did it explains the worth and intention of God. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You cannot shut me down. (laughs) 
It says, with your blood, through your sacrifice on the cross, through the shedding of your blood when your body was broken, when you were crucified and pierced, in that sacrifice, Jesus purchased all of us for himself. And if you deny the value of any human being, you deny the value of the sacrifice of Jesus. I want you to hear something beautiful here. It says, you have made them to be a kingdom. This, this sort of came exploding into my brain. You made them to become a kingdom, not to live in a kingdom or to be citizens in a kingdom. You made them to be a kingdom, not many kingdoms, not multitudes of kingdoms. There's one kingdom that Jesus is creating and we, the church, are that kingdom. We, humanity, brought together from every nation and every color and every language and every people. We are being made one kingdom under Jesus to serve to be priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. I think that's an important phrase. And they will reign on the earth. I think a part of our dilemma is that our eschatology, our view of the end of things, has had this view that you just survive life and then you die. And at least then you go to heaven. <sighs> Made it. And then we, we, we take this on a broad scale. You just have to survive human history. And then one day Jesus is going to end history. He's going to come back. He's going to create a new heaven, a new earth. <sighs> Made it. But here he says that he will make us to be a kingdom and to serve as priests on the earth. Is it possible we've misunderstood God's intention and his strategy? That God never in, intended for us to just survive human history. We were supposed to write human history. We were supposed to create human history. We were supposed to redefine human history. That God knew that without his people, humanity would never transition from a past it wants to forget to a future it cannot imagine. What if God has placed us here? To be the new humanity and to create this new world. As I was looking at Charlottesville in this stark moment where men were screaming and holding Nazi flags and claiming white supremacy and denouncing the value of of blacks and Jews and anyone who wasn't like them. And it was all around whether a monument would remain or be taken down. That was a reminder of what happened before all of us here were born. And then it struck me. The reason that's such an important battle for them is that all they can do is hold on to the past because they have no future. Yeah. I think that's a part of the problem sometimes. <laughs> Let me tell you, there are forces at work 
trying to stop what we are going to do. See, I... In the name of Jesus, stop. Sorry, sometimes you, you just have to get Pentecostal with technology. You just... He just doesn't understand Anglican. <laughs> so as all this unwrapped, and I, I, I felt angry and I felt sick. I felt nauseous because I, I love this country. And it, it's not as if I didn't know white supremacy existed. I knew it was alive and well. I, I, I knew there were neo-Nazis and Nazis in our society. I knew that there were people who were driven by hate. But, but how emboldened they were to go public really disturbed me. And the fact that we've created an environment where they feel confident enough to be so bold and so public is disturbing to me. See, I think we need to suffocate the oxygen out of the room so that hate cannot breathe. But I, then I, I saw these Twitter responses. I, I confess, if you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, I went on a Twitter rage. <laughs> I was on a rampage and I was, I didn't know, I knew I shouldn't. I always tell people, don't do that. I, 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 I'm trying to like send that to the president. Don't do that. And... <laughs> But I started doing it. I just went crazy. And I sent one tweet, then another tweet, then another tweet, then another tweet, then another tweet. Then I sent one that said, this will probably be my last tweet. And then it wasn't. And I just kept going and going and going because I kept seeing all these other tweets. But then I saw this one tweet by someone I agreed with. Have you ever heard someone say something and you agree with them, but you wish they hadn't said what they said? See, I, I, I saw this, this person of faith who was so committed to social justice say, America was born in slavery and slavery was born in America. Neither one of those statements are true. We were not born in slavery. Slavery was a part of the story of humanity. But, but I, I don't want us to get confused. Slavery was not born in America. We're, we're responsible for a lot of things. But we're not, we're not responsible for the, for the beginning of slavery. And so I thought, maybe I should do some fact-checking. How long has there been slavery in the world? And I thought, well, what document could I look at to kind of get an early sense of when slavery began? I thought, you know, the Bible is a historic book, and it records history. So I thought, I wonder how early in the Bible slavery is mentioned. Do you realize that in the scriptures, slavery is mentioned in Genesis chapter 9? That's how early slavery becomes a part of the human story. We didn't even make it to double digits, chapter 10, before we introduce the concept of slavery. And it seems to be rooted in the conflict between Abel and Cain and how Cain kills his brother. And God says to Cain, where is your brother? And he says to God, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, of course you are. That's the way he designed it, for you to care for each other, for you to take care of each other. But somehow he refused to become his brother's keeper, but was willing to become his brother's killer. 
See, I, I think that we will be confused if we think there's a third side to this. You either choose to become your brother's keeper or you will be a part of being your brother's killer. Because when the oppressed and the voices have no one to stand for them, we are not innocent in our silence. The only space that evil needs to prevail is silence. And we must fill that space with the voice of those who stand on their behalf. And I saw the history of human slavery and I realized that sometimes we misunderstand the scriptures. That we, we, I think sometimes we think, well, the Bible's for those of us who are free. Don't we wish God had written the Bible for people who were slaves? Because maybe then he could really understand us. But we forget that the scriptures are actually written by people who were slaves. People who were slaves and found their freedom. In fact, sometimes we forget that Jesus was born a slave. That all of Israel were under the oppression of the Roman Empire and the Israelites were slaves to the Romans. That in fact, the entire story of Jesus is within the context of slavery. See, God understands the heart and the story and the pain of the oppressed. The entire New Testament begins with the writings of Moses who... God chose to deliver the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. But even as they moved toward their freedom, it was almost as if freedom was only a temporary condition from them. They were from slaves to Egypt, and then there was the Persians, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the Romans. They went from slavery to slavery to slavery, from oppression to oppression to oppression. And all the writings of Jeremiah and Isaiah The stories of Daniel and David, all of those stories are the stories of a people who struggle out of slavery to discover their freedom. And it should not surprise us then that God stands always for the oppressed. God stands always for the powerless. God is the God who steps in for those who have no voice and no one. And if we are to be identified with the God who stands for the oppressed, we too must stand for the oppressed. (laughs) It's not incidental that, that the Tower of Babel and the birth of the church at Pentecost are parallel stories. The Tower of Babel is people coming together to advance their most destructive outcome and God divides them with languages and nations. And Pentecost is when by the presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we are brought together and they begin speaking in languages to everyone who came. In one, God birthed languages to slow down the destructive effect of the human heart. And at Pentecost, God gave us languages to accelerate the power of community and the wonder of forgiveness and grace. See, God has always been working in human history, but he works in the reality of the human condition. Slavery has been with us as long as we have had the freedom to choose. America wasn't born into slavery. Humanity's story is a story of slavery and oppression. And we are a part of that story. 
But don't you wish that God had a strategy to try to reconcile the problem, to bring justice in the middle of an unjust world? And as I was asking that very question, I saw this conversation between God and Abram before he was known as Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. It says, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. When I read this, I, I was almost set back. God is talking to Abram and saying, I want you to know that your children, the generations to come, they're going to be oppressed and enslaved for generations, for hundreds of years. They're going to be enslaved and mistreated in a foreign land. There'll be strangers there. Then he goes on, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. It's... To me, astonishing that God is saying, look, I know how the human story goes. And I want you to know that in the moment you feel abandoned, I am with you. And when you go into this moment of slavery, I want you to know that the short game looks as if you have lost and that I have left you. But the long game will let you know that I have never left you and you will come out of this victorious. God is the God who can see generations in the future and saying, you're not only going to come out of this stronger, you're going to come out of it more prosperous. And then at the end of the story, you have Moses and Israel, a tribe of slaves. All they had ever known in their memory was slavery. Leave Egypt with the treasures of Egypt. Only God can turn a story like that. Wouldn't it be great if he did that more than once? Imagine if God did that here, even in our nation. That those who were once enslaved, their generations had been entrusted with the prosperity of that nation. It's almost as if God said, I see what you're doing. In 1776, and I see what you're doing in 1856, and I know what's still happening in 1966, and none of this is lost to me. See, maybe it's been in the darkness to us, but it was always in the light to God. It's almost as if God said, "You, you enslave them if that's what you decide to do, but I'm telling you. I've got the end game in my hands because I know the future of humanity. And the descendant of this slave will one day be named Barack Obama and he will become the president of your entire nation. It's crazy, isn't it? Who would ever write a story like that? That one day the descendant of a slave would be the most powerful man in the free world. I mean, look at our culture. I don't know if you know this, but if you have kids or if you are one, there isn't a 14-year-old kid in America, whether they're white or Latino or Asian, who doesn't want to be black. <laughs> if you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? They would say black. I mean, they don't say quite like that. They say, I want to be Beyonce. 
I want to be Jay-Z. I want to be Dr. Dre. I want to be Michael Jordan. I want to be Tiger Woods. I want to be Serena Williams. And you know what they're saying? When I grow up, I want to be black. I want to be a descendant of those that were enslaved and oppressed. I want to be a descendant of those who lost everything because of cruelty and injustice because I know that God is going to bring it back to me. We don't even realize that we are living in a moment of biblical proportion. More powerful and more profound and more miraculous than the parting of the Red Sea. Because we live in a society where where our, our most powerful icons are the descendants of slaves. That's a beautiful thing. Who would have ever guessed that the most celebrated golfer in my generation would be Tiger Woods, African-American. The most successful tennis players would be Serena and Venus Williams, African-Americans. Who would have guessed that some of the most celebrated actors would be Denzel Washington and Will Smith, African-Americans. Who would have ever guessed that from Aretha Franklin to Whitney Houston to Beyonce, they would be the greatest female singers in the world, African-Americans. And don't tell me Adele isn't black. Who would have ever guessed that the most prolific writer that entertains us would be Shonda Rhimes, an African-American woman who... Who could have ever predicted when Harriet Tubman lived on this earth that one day the most powerful and trusted voice in America would be an African-American woman named Oprah, known just by an O. And everyone knows that the next James Bond should be Idris Elba. And I'm just proposing to you that this is not a historic anomaly. That this is exactly what God said to Abram he would do with the people of Israel. See, the future of humanity is a free humanity. Our past is a past of enslavement and oppression and injustice. But our future is a future of freedom and justice and compassion. I almost feel pity for what I saw last week. I see weak-minded individuals fighting for the past because they have no future. But sometimes I see us trying to repair the the past rather than create the future. You cannot change the past, but you can create the future. And I can tell you where we're going. See, I see the future of humanity because Jesus has given us the picture of us. And we know it's right. We know it's right. We know that in Jesus' house, everyone is family. There'll be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, every language, every color, every ethnicity, every economic situation. 
It's a future of humanity. It is not me or you. It is us. I, I've been just absolutely intrigued by this physiological phenomenon called phantom pain. That when a, a soldier goes to war and loses a limb, a leg or an arm, years later, they can experience pain in that limb that is no longer there. It's as if it was there. It's a memory of what once was, but no longer is. It's called phantom pain. And I started wondering, how did we know what happened in Charlottesville was wrong? Why did it provoke our greater sensibilities? Why does it disturb us? Because after all, if humans are nothing more than just an advanced evolutionary species, if we're no different than orangutans or aardvarks, if we're no different than snakes or rats or roaches, then why would we be bothered by what happened last week? We're not bothered when a snake eats a rat or when a termite destroys a house. We don't think that termites somehow lack conscience. You know, when a mosquito falls on your arm and starts sucking your blood without a permit, you you don't think to yourself, there it is, evil again. You just say, that's a mosquito. Because mosquitoes do what mosquitoes do, and scorpions do what scorpions do, and rats do what rats do, and roaches do what roaches do. But do humans do what humans do? Or do humans somehow do what humans should not do? And we call it inhumane. We call it unnatural. We somehow know it is beneath us, and we must rise above it. How exactly do you rise above your humanity? See, if if all we are is some kind of evolutionary anomaly, you cannot rise above your humanity. All you can do is be human. And we should not be incensed or troubled by the injustice and the evil. We should not be troubled by wars or violence. We should understand that's just what it looks like to be human. But what is it about us? We know. We know that jealousy and greed, avarice, we know that violence and oppression, we know they're wrong. We know they violate the human spirit. How do we know that? How is it that we can imagine a world we've never known? How can we imagine a world without that kind of hatred? How can we imagine a world without that kind of racism? How can we imagine a world where there is hope and peace and justice and equity? How do we imagine that when we've never known it? Human ideals, they are the phantom pain of the soul. Our souls remember what we have lost when we were lost without God. So even though you've never known a world without peace, your soul longs for a world that has peace. Even though you've never known a world without war, your soul longs for a world without war. Even though you've never known a world without poverty, your soul longs for a world without poverty and something inside of you knows that anything less is beneath our humanity. 
And I'm convinced that's why we're here. That's why the church is here. That's why we are placed in the middle of human history. To be this kingdom. To be this humanity. To be the phantom pain of the soul. See, I am convinced that we are supposed to break down every wall, erase all the lines, rewrite what it means to be humanity, what it means to be community. This is the place where people should come together from whether they're white or black or brown or whatever, whether you're Asian or Chinese, Japanese, Korean, it doesn't matter if you're Mexican or Puerto Rican or Cuban. I was in a room once with these Latin American leaders and we're trying to put together speakers for an event and I recommended this guy from Bolivia and they said, oh no, he's not brown enough. I said, what? So he's not brown enough. That meant he wasn't Mexican. So okay, I, I just, I've just walked out of rooms where people see things in black and white. You're telling me now I'm in a room where we see things in shades of brown. See, if we start working backwards to the past, We're going to walk into a world of hate and injustice. So it's time to walk into the future. Because I know what the history of humanity is. And it's beneath us. So I'm ready to move into the future of humanity. Because right now it feels like it is beyond us. But I want you to know it's not. It's not beyond you. You can be a person of peace. You can be a person of justice. You can be a person of integrity. You can be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. I am so done letting hate fill the room. They do not speak for us. We are the new humanity. And we live for a world where everyone matters, where everyone belongs, where everyone is our family, where the colors do not divide us, where they unite us and make us more beautiful than we ever were alone. This, this, this is our moment. This is our moment. We will not let the church be on the wrong side of history ever again. Because this world, not just this world that we imagine, but this world that we're creating, it's too beautiful to let die. It's just too beautiful to let go of. I was asked to write these articles and I said, what's the church's response? And I, I was so, so proud of our community to say, we don't need to respond to this crisis because we responded years ago to our convictions. We're creating the future that humanity needs. None too late. See, I'm tired of the church reacting to the problems of the world. We need to create the solutions that the world needs even before they know they need them. And, At the close of this article, I said, you know, as a speaker, I have a chance to inspire people to change. As a writer, I have the opportunity to guide people to change. But as a pastor, we get to create the change. Because the, the change that the world needs 
is us. It's us. It's all of us. See, when we stand before Jesus, we're going to see the most profound and extraordinary diversity that we have ever known. It's going to be beautiful people from Alabama and people from Albania, people from South Dakota and people from Syria. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be black and white and it's going to be Asian and Latino. we're We're going to see people who came out of Buddhism and Hinduism, out of Islam and Christianity, who were atheists and agnostics, who, who heard the voice of Jesus and said, yes, I want to be a part of the future of humanity. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be beautiful then. But I can't wait till then. I want to see it now. And the world needs to see it now. So let's be that now. The future the world needs. God actually has a name for it. It's called the church. So let's just be the church and see what God does with us. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you've just received. Allow it to go deeply into your soul. To allow Jesus to do the deep work that only he can do. And I also want to encourage you to be a part of what we're doing here at Mosaic, to go to the Mosaic app and to become a part of the Mosaic Foundation, to become a regular giver and investor in bringing this message across the world. I want to thank you so much for being here with us. God bless you.